What an incredibly hard passage. I said a couple of weeks ago when we got to this chapter that Second Peter chapter 2, or if you will, the, the, um, the middle part of Peter's second letter to the church is one of the toughest in all of the Bible. It is one of those passages, it is one of those chapters that if you were not reading through Scripture systematically, if you were not preaching on a Sunday through books of the Bible, you would skip over this passage. I certainly would. And the further complication that we have that I think we need to be willing to voice and to admit is that we live in a culture, we live in a time that has no appetite for the idea of judgment. I'm not talking about judgment in terms of someone being mean to you or overly critical of you because you're not following their rules. I'm talking about we have no appetite in our culture for the idea of an absolute right and an absolute wrong. We have no place in our cultural thinking for truth, absolute truth, that will one day hold people responsible for their actions. And the church is not immune to the influence of those ideas. We can, and and there are churches, any church can get out of balance in their teaching. And there are churches that probably focus way too much on judgment. And they do so at the expense of not teaching people about the kindness of God, the love of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God, how we are told that we are friends of God because of Jesus, how we are adopted into his family. But again, if we're honest, we know that many of the churches today that are the most popular churches are the ones that focus on the other side of that coin that are week in and week out focused on encouragement, focused on mercy and kindness, and never speak of God's judgment. And the goal, of course, is to be not a balanced church, but a church that speaks the full counsel of God. And my hope this morning, my aim is to show you from the Bible why it is both good and necessary for us to embrace a right theology about judgment. That it is something that that we need to believe, it is something we need to accept, and it is healthy for us in our Christian life to understand the judgment of God. And not just to understand it, because right thinking always leads to right living. And so I believe that if we think rightly about judgment, that it will influence how we live before God and how we live before others. And that's what I want us to see today, what I hope we see in this text, that even though, and even last night when I was putting on Facebook the, the invite that I do every Saturday to people to come to church, I sat there for 15 minutes trying to figure out what sermon title to use. 
And I kept thinking, man, if I put judgment in this, like no one's coming that doesn't belong at Agape. Like they're not going to be like, oh yeah, I want to go hear about that. They're going to be like, I'm skipping that church or I'm skipping tomorrow. Yet there's a reason that God had Peter talk so much about this. There's a reason the Bible speaks about it. And I, I want us to see that today. If you're a note taker and if you picked up one of the worship guides, there's some spots there for you to fill in some blanks. And so let's start with this first life truth. And that is judgment is an inescapable future reality for everyone. Judgment is an inescapable future reality for everyone. One of the reasons it is so important that we have a good and right theology about judgment is because it is coming. And not a single person in this room will escape it. Not a single person that you know in your life will escape it. Not a member of your family, not a friend, not a co-worker, not a person that you see at Walmart, no one will escape the reality of judgment. Hebrews 9.27 tells us that it is appointed for man to die once and after that, judgment. And that is sobering. You're not going to have that on coffee cups at Christian bookstores. When we get our t-shirts in a few weeks, that's not the verse we have on the back. But it's a reality. And it is an important reality. And it is one that Peter is trying to make clear. Both the ungodly and the godly will face judgment. The ungodly is clear in what Peter wrote in this second chapter from verse 4 to verse 9. He tells the church, if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, verse 6, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction. And down to verse 9, God knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Peter is saying, if all these things are true, and they are, If all of these examples happened, then understand that the knowledge that God throughout the human history has intervened at times to bring judgment, know that that is proof that He will intervene again and He will bring judgment again and it will be a final judgment. And this is something that Peter is writing on very intentionally because the false teachers that he is addressing were denying that judgment was coming. So remember the context of this letter. This is Peter's last letter to the church. He is aware that he is about to be martyred. I'm not sure if he knows exactly when that's going to happen. Some people speculate he's actually in prison when he's writing this, but he knows that the end of his time on the earth 
is now. And he is writing to the church. And one of the things that he's concerned about, maybe the primary thing he's concerned about, is the church would stay faithful. And he knows that within the church, all of these false teachers have popped up. And they are leading people astray, and they will lead people astray. And they're teaching falsehoods. And one of the falsehoods they were teaching is that there is no judgment. There is no return of Christ to judge the world. Well, if you knew that to be reality, that Christ is not returning to judge the world, then what is the next logical conclusion? Live however you want to live. There's, there's no judgment. And we can, we can tell ourselves all day, no, I, I, we would just live morally good lives for the purpose of living morally good lives. No, we wouldn't. At some point, that will fall apart. And these false teachers, they were living lives the way they wanted to live them because they believed there would be no judgment. Jesus said in Luke 17, beginning in verse 26, Jesus used these two same examples that Peter does. And Jesus says this, just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They will be, there were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planning and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Jesus gives this same sobering reality. Church, there's a world that's just living their lives and they're doing whatever they want to do and they are eating and drinking and buying and selling like there is no judgment, that there is no end. And they did that until the very moment that judgment came and they realized it was too late and it will be just like that when Christ returns. The ungodly will be judged, but it's not just the ungodly that will be judged, the godly will be as well. Even those of us in this room who are in Christ, there will be a judgment. It is a different kind of judgment. Hebrews 9, 28, that passage a moment ago, I read verse 27, this appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. Right after that, the writer of Hebrews says, Christ will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. He's not coming back a second time to deal with sin because he's already dealt with sin. That's what he did on the cross. He is coming back to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. If you are in this room today and you can say with sincerity that you are eagerly waiting on the return of Christ, good news is yours. He is coming to save you. So the judgment that we will face as Christians is not one that has or will address sin, not specifically in terms of salvation, heaven, or hell, but the type of judgment we will face as Christians is what Paul mentioned in 2 Corinthians 5. He said, we should make it our aim to please Christ for... We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Even the godly one day 
will stand before Jesus and we will give an account of our life. And what Scripture tells us is that we are going to receive what the way we lived earned. Reward or loss. And I, I, the way that I read the Bible is it is some type of tangible reward. I don't know what it is. But I believe the Bible says we will receive rewards or we will lose rewards based on how faithful we were to Christ as his people. Which is why Paul says we should make it our aim to please him. Church, we ask what is God's will for our life? One way the Bible speaks to that directly is His will, is you live to please Him. Every day and everything you do and every action and every reaction and every thought, you make it your aim to please Jesus. One day you will see Him face to face. He is coming to save you if you are waiting on Him. But He is also coming and we will have a conversation with Christ about our lives. So judgment is an inescapable future reality for everyone. If you don't know Christ, flee to Christ because He will save you. If you do know Christ, make it your aim to please Him because one day you will stand before Him and give an account of your life. Now, that life truth, that reality should influence how we live. That's why we call them life truths in our, in our notes because they Those truths should impact, influence how we live. And the reality that judgment is coming for all people, godly and ungodly, it should influence how we live. And I want us to look at that this morning. I want us to look at a few ways in which I think the reality of judgment should influence how we live. Number one, I believe the reality of judgment should soften how we view and feel about other people. The reality of judgment should soften how we view and feel about other people. Every person in your life is a soul that will spend eternity somewhere. Every person that you work with Every person that cuts you off on the interstate, every person you see on television, every person in your government, every person is a soul that will spend eternity somewhere, and that reality should soften how we view people and how we feel about them. If it doesn't, then people become objects to us. I want you to look at this. Look at the, look at how the false teachers treated people. Go to verse 14 and 15. These false teachers that are under God's judgment, they have eyes full of adultery. What does that mean? It means that likely these men, for them, every woman they saw was an object of sensuality to them. An opportunity for adultery if they could take that opportunity. They were simply objects to them. Then he says, 
They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. They were so greedy that the NIV says they were experts in greed. They're trained in greed. Greed for money, greed for things, greed for pleasure. People for them were objects by which they could receive what it was they were greedy for. And this is made even more clear in verse 15 when they are compared to Balaam who loved gain from wrongdoing. For these false teachers, people were objects. They weren't names, they weren't faces, they weren't souls, they were objects. And here's the reality for you and I. If we're not careful, people also become objects to us. Maybe objects just like this, sensuality and greed. You know, sometimes people are simply the object of our anger. Their ideology is so different from ours. Their views are so different from ours. Their thoughts are so different from ours that that they are just objects of our wrath. And the reality of judgment should not harden us against people, even people we really, really, really disagree with. The reality of judgment should soften us to people. You say, well, why is that? And I would respond in the Word so we can be like God. Because Ezekiel 18.23, God says, Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked? Is it not that I rather they should turn from their way and live? God who will bring judgment on all people says, I don't take pleasure in the death of the wicked. I would rather them turn and live. And you and I should be the same. The reality of judgment should soften us. First of all, because God is not hardened toward people. He's not. Matthew chapter 9, there's this picture where Jesus is traveling around from village to village and town to town, and the Bible says He saw the crowds. And when He saw the crowds, that He had compassion on them. He took pity on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Can I just tell you that the crowds in the day of Jesus were no different than the crowds in our day. They were filled with saints and sinners. They were filled with people with all different types of ideologies and thoughts and political views. And there were victims and victimizers. And Jesus saw past all of it and had compassion on the people because He knew they didn't have a shepherd. He took pity on them because judgment is coming, and He knows what that means. The reality of judgment should never harden us. The Christian idea should never be, that's right, judgment's coming and you're going to get yours. The reality of judgment is we should weep and mourn that every person will spend eternity somewhere with God or apart from God. And the other reason that the reality of judgment should not harden us is because you and I did not make ourselves righteous. In verse 5, Noah, who is preserved in the midst of judgment, is called a herald of righteousness. It means a preacher of righteousness. 
Sometimes we just think of Noah. He was the guy that God told build the boat, so he built the boat. Peter says he was a preacher. He preached about holiness, probably with his words and definitely with his actions. What do you think Noah told people when they asked him, what are you doing? I think he preached righteousness to them. Judgment's coming. But in the end, only seven people. were preserved. How did Noah become righteous? If you go to Genesis 6, you will find a verse that says, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. The verse right before that says, Noah found favor with God. The word favor means grace, mercy. Before Noah is called a righteous man, he is identified as someone that God was merciful to, that God showed His grace to. Noah was not the only man on the earth that had made himself righteous. Noah was the one that God chose and showed His grace to him. In Matthew 18, Jesus tells this story, this parable. And he says, there's this man who gets called to his master, to the king, because he owes him 10,000 talents, and the king wants his money. And to put that in perspective, in today's economy, 10,000 talents would be around $6 billion. So you get called to this master, and you owe him $6 billion. In other words, you owe an incalculable debt that you can never pay. And the servant says, will you just be patient and give me more time? Which is laughable because he could have spent the rest of his life working and never been able to pay the debt back. And the king has mercy on him and says, not only, it doesn't say I'll give you more time, he says, your debt's forgiven. And that servant walks out of that courtroom with that king free. Not only free, but a little bit richer because now he doesn't have to spend his money paying back the debt. And he runs into a servant, a fellow servant, who owes him what would be in today's economics about $12,000. Decent amount of money, but comparatively speaking, nothing compared to $6 billion. And that servant says, I know I owe you this money. Would you please be patient and give me more time? And the servant that just left the king's presence says, absolutely not. And he has him put in jail. And the king hears that, and he calls that servant back in and says, I was merciful to you. You had more than you'd ever had. Why were you not forgiving? Why were you not merciful as I was forgiving and merciful? And he says, now I'm going to put you in jail. And Jesus says, that will be the kingdom of God. That will be how God will treat those who are not merciful. The reason that the reality of judgment should soften us is because you and I did not make ourselves righteous. We did not forgive ourselves. We did not earn it. We have been forgiven an incalculable debt. And we should long that other people would also have their debt forgiven, including the debt that they owe us. Let's keep going. How does the reality of judgment influence the way we live? 
It sustains us in the midst of injustice and difficult times. The reality of judgment sustains us in the midst of injustice and difficult times. I use those two words intentionally. First, injustice. Every single one of us will have times in our lives where we are going to feel the sting of injustice. We are going to feel like the world and people are unfair to us, and maybe they are. And everything in us, when someone is unfair to us, everything in us will want to prevail against that person. Everything in us will want to fight for our rights. But we have this Christian ethic throughout the New Testament that Jesus teaches that we should not seek revenge. We should not try to avenge ourselves. We should fight against everything we feel in us that wants to pay back someone and what they've done to us. We should not avenge ourselves and we should not try to right the wrongs against us. How is it possible that you and I could ever do that? And it is only if we trust in God as our avenger and we believe that one day God will set every injustice right and that God will deal in some way with everything that is done against us unfairly. It is not forgiving someone and and not paying someone back for how they've hurt you is not saying it's okay what you did. It is saying I trust God with what happens to you because of what you did. I trust God with that. In Psalm 96 that we looked at in our prayer time this morning, the psalmist says, Say among the nation the Lord reigns. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad, let the earth rejoice before the Lord, for He comes to judge the earth, and He will judge the world in righteousness and peoples in His faithfulness. God promises that He will one day judge everyone and everything with equity, and that reality is what allows you and I to love sinful people who have harmed us. Because we trust God. We trust Him. In Second Peter, in verse 9, we get this incredible passage, this incredible truth in the midst of all of these really hard things. Peter's made the case, if God didn't spare the ancient world, but He preserved Noah, if God turned the city of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, but He rescued righteous Lot, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. Beautiful verse. The reality of judgment sustains us when life is not fair and people are not fair, and it sustains us when times are difficult. Because the truth that Peter is teaching is that God protects and delivers righteous people, people that have found His favor, people of grace, and God not only will do that, but God knows how to deliver the godly from trials. In other words, He knows how to deliver you from your trials in just the right way. If you were to deliver yourself from trials, you would do it in a specific way, and it might be the wrong way. God knows how to deliver you from your trials in the way that is best for you and best for His glory and even best for others. 
And what's really, really interesting, and we won't go too deep into this, but what's really interesting is in both of the examples that Peter gives, the trials were the result of God's judgment on a situation. God was bringing judgment against the earth, against the situation on the earth, and godly people were experiencing trials because of it. In other words, when God brings judgment, sometimes the godly are not unaffected. But they will always be delivered. They will always come through whatever the trial is with a greater faith, a greater love for Jesus, a greater testimony. Even right now, according to this passage... The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. You see what that passage is saying? God is keeping the unrighteous under punishment right now until the day of judgment. Even right now, unrighteous people are being held under punishment, under judgment, until the day of judgment. And sometimes you and I get caught up in that. What is God's punishment on the unrighteous? According to Romans 1, it is that He is letting them have their way. That He is giving them over to what they want. There was a German poet who said, the history of the world is the judgment of the world. And you and I sometimes get caught up in that. And what God is encouraging us with through Peter is even though we may often be affected by what is happening in this world that is under God's punishment until the day of judgment, is that God always controls what comes into the lives of His people and He will always deliver them in such a way that it will turn out for their good. And I I will be the first to admit to you that a theology that says... Anything bad that happens comes from Satan is a much easier theology to swallow, but it is not what the Bible says. There are certainly spiritual attacks. There are certainly things that Satan does, and he is the originator of evil, and God does not sin. But God is keeping this world under punishment until the day of judgment. And you and I are not unaffected by that, but our lives are not controlled by that. Because God knows how to deliver the godly. And He knows how to do it in such a way. This was meant to be encouragement to these people who were, who were hearing these false teachers are going to come. They're going to try to lead some of you astray. And Peter says, trust God. He knows how to deliver you. Look to Jesus. Flee to Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. He knows how to deliver you. In this world, you will have trouble, but He's overcome the world. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. The reality of judgment serves as an effective restraint against sin. The reality of judgment serves as an effective restraint against sin. I believe, I believe, and I've taught here for as long as I've been here, in what is called 
the perseverance of the saints. I believe that if a person belongs to God, God will keep them. I don't think that means they can't stray. I don't think that means there won't be times in their life where they wander, but I do believe the promise of the Bible is that God will keep His people. One of the problems that people have with that theology, which is sometimes called once saved, always saved, but I I really, really dislike that term, so I don't use it. But one of the problems people have with that is that it seems to them to be a license to do whatever you want. Because if you get saved and you'll always be saved, then what does it really matter how you live, right? I'm not saying right as in that's right. I'm saying that would be the logical conclusion. Years ago, I heard a preacher preaching, and it was very helpful to me in his illustration he used, but he said, oftentimes people treat salvation like a pill. He actually said shot, but these days you have to be careful when you're talking about those kinds of things, so I'll just say pill. And I'm just kidding, laugh, okay, it's fine. So he said it's like a pill, and and you think of it like a pill. You get saved, and the doctor gives you a pill, and now you're immune from hell. You can do whatever you want because you've taken the medicine, so you're good. And he says that's not how the Bible paints that picture at all. It more paints it like an everyday counselor. That every day you have a counselor that is counseling you, and not only counseling you, but molding your circumstances to keep you on the right path so that you persevere to the end. And I would remark to you that one of the counsels that God gives us is warnings. He gives us warnings in the Bible, and they become effective counsel to those who belong to Him. Verse 6 says that Sodom and Gomorrah was an example of what would happen to the ungodly. Do you know who cares about that example? the godly. We see God's judgment and we say, that's a reality. It's a reality that God will judge the world. And I don't want any part of judgment. I want to be out of judgment. I want to be with Christ. It becomes an effective warning to our souls. Look at verse 8. Righteous Lot. It's a righteous man who was being tormented in his soul over the lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Now compare that to what the false teachers, how they lived in verse 9 through 15. The false teachers were people who indulged in the lust of defiling passion. Again, probably talking about sensuality and sexuality. And they despised authority. Not just the Lord's authority, but all authority. The idea of authority, they despise that. He goes on to say they are bold and willful. They don't tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. The glorious ones, they're likely the fallen angels. You get into Jude, talks about that. How Michael the archangel would not speak against Satan or his kingdom. In other words, he wouldn't be critical of them. He left that to the Lord. But these men, we're not even told how they blasphemed the glorious ones, but they did in some way because they were arrogant. And he goes on to say that they have an insatiable appetite for sin. They can't get enough of it. 
They can't get enough of sin. They can't get enough, and it will never be enough, which, by the way, is why if you live your life for sin, you will always have to increase the sin. Whatever sin you are in, you will always have to increase it because eventually it's not enough because you have an insatiable appetite for it. So what we have is a picture of the godly and the ungodly. Those who are tormented as they see sin happening around them and those who are ungodly who can't get enough of it. And the Bible asks of us, which are you? And it becomes an effective warning to the souls of the righteous, just as I believe it's an invitation to the unrighteous to come and be saved. Do we weep and mourn over the sin that is around us? I'm not asking, are we angry because we think our way of life is being threatened? That's a totally different question. I'm asking, do we weep over sin? Because God has put His law on our hearts and we understand God's values and it causes us to mourn when we see His values not being lived out. The opposite of that is to become so desensitized to sin that you don't even think about it. And church, that's a danger for us. In the, you know, I don't talk about this a lot, but we need to check ourselves sometimes in the music we listen to, in the shows we watch, and the movies that we're entertained by, and ask ourselves if we become so desensitized to sin that it doesn't bother us, we're entertained by it. Because God is calling us to understand the reality of judgment as a way that we would be protected against following the path of those who will be judged. Judgment is a restraint against sin in our lives, even for those of us who are in Christ. Like, we have an understanding that one day we're going to stand before Jesus. And it becomes this, I, this, this understanding. I don't want to forgive this person. Why should I forgive them? Because one day you're going to stand before Jesus. And He may ask you about that. I don't want to love that person. They are ruining everything about my way of life. Why should I care about them? Because one day you're going to stand before Jesus. I don't, I don't, want to obey this, one day you're going to stand before Jesus. The reality of that constrains us through the power of the Holy Spirit. And then finally, how does the reality of judgment influence us? It leads us to the Word of Christ and the throne of grace. The reality of judgment leads us to the Word of Christ and to the throne of grace. All right, look at verse 2 in chapter 2. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. Talking about the false teachers. Many will follow them. And look at verse 14. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. 
the target of the false teachers are those who are unsteady in their faith. And many who are not firm in their faith will follow them. And Scott started to hit on this this morning, I thought. thought he was going to preach a part of my sermon for me, which has been all right. But false teachers don't always have a mic. They're not always up front. They're not always the one teaching. Sometimes they're the ones in the church with influence who are living a life that is outside of the gospel living, and they're influencing others in the process. I've been talking about in Second Peter the need for us to be rooted and growing. Why do we need to be rooted? Because if we're not rooted, we are a target for false teachers, false influences. If we're not steady and firm in our faith in the Word of Christ, then we can get carried away. Jude 12, which is kind of a parallel to Second Peter, says these false teachers are like hidden reefs at your love feast. He's talking about those meals they would have in the church where they would celebrate the Lord's Supper, basically a first century potluck, and they would all get together. They'd celebrate the Lord's Supper and they would eat together. And he said, they're among you at your love feast and they're like hidden reefs that a boat can't see but cracks the bottom of it when it hits. They're fruitless trees that get uprooted. If you're trying to grow spiritually and you're not rooted in God's Word, the storm comes and your life will be blown over. And so the reality of judgment and the reality that false teachers are under judgment and the fact that they will target those who are not serious and steady in their faith leads us to the Word of Christ. It leads us to become serious about God's Word. It should lead us to become serious about studying His Word and reading His Word and knowing His Word because if we don't read and know His Word, how will we know what is false? And secondly, the reality of judgment should lead us to the throne of grace. Hebrews 4 says, Let us with confidence draw near the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in times of need. Let me make this statement. If we don't understand and embrace judgment, we cannot really know grace. Grace is the kindness of God to undeserving people. If we don't know the reality of what our lives deserve and the judgment that is coming upon those who don't know Jesus, then we really can't sing about grace. Because unless we know what debt we have been forgiven, our heart will not spring forth a new song to God about His kindness to us in redeeming us. But when we, when we know the reality of judgment, when we know it's coming, when we know that our lives deserve judgment, then we are able to raise our hands and praise God's grace with sincerity then we are able to run to the throne of grace to receive mercy. 
We live in a world, J.C. Ryle said a hundred years ago, where our soul is in constant danger. The reality of judgment leads us to the word of Christ and the throne of grace so that we can be saved from that danger. I want to ask the worship team if they'll come up. We're going to end this morning singing together. A beautiful song of praise. And as we do that, I want to, I want to tie all this back in. I want you to think about the prayer focus for today. Sing to the Lord a new song. Judgment is not, judgment is not the, a most appealing subject matter. But it is a good and necessary subject matter. You guys can bring the lights down. If we, if we truly understand judgment and the reality of it, I believe it will soften us toward other people, even those that we really disagree with. I believe it will sustain us in the midst of times where we feel like life is not fair and we're going through difficulties. I believe it will help prevent us from wandering into sin. And I believe it will lead us to the throne of grace. Thankful for what God has done. That we're not under His judgment. That Christ is returning to save those who are eagerly waiting on Him. And He's going to reward us for the faithfulness that He helped us live out. He is going to reward us for the faithfulness that He put in us that we exercised in this life. It is something we have to look forward to. It's grace. It constrains our lives, but it should constrain our lives in a way that's very encouraging. Because one day Jesus, in grace, will look at you and say, Well done, good and faithful servant. That's the new song. Every day we can sing a new song about how good He's been to us. If you're like me, I I talked about this in the podcast, I love the fall. I love it. I don't love it like pumpkin spice latte love it, but I love the leaves. I love the fall. I love that first cool breeze that hits my face every year. I erupt in prayer. Because I'm so thankful for how good God is. You have things like that in your life that cause your soul to erupt in grace in a new song. So this morning, I want to encourage you to... Praise Him for those things and those gifts. This morning, if you need prayer, I want to ask if our prayer partners will come up and just over here to my left. If you need prayer for anything this morning, anything at all, would you would you come and be prayed for? Sometimes we need to just pray alone. So you can pray where you are. You can kneel. You can, you can sit and pray. You can come up front and pray. But you may you may need someone to pray with you. You may need someone that you can just say, I just need to hear a voice praying for me right now. And that's what, that's what our prayer partners are here to do about anything you need. And finally this morning, I just want to say if, if what this sermon has done today is drum up in you concern about your soul, that's a hard place to be, but it is the beginning of being in a very good place. 
So would you listen to that call this morning? If you are not eagerly waiting on Jesus to return and save you, would you turn to Him today? The Bible says anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And all I ask of you is before you leave this room today, before you leave this church, would you be bold enough to come and find me or come and talk to Nick and just let us know that God's dealing with something in your heart. The Bible says, if today you hear his voice, don't refuse to listen. So would you today respond to his call if you hear it? Today can be the day of salvation where the fear of judgment is removed and where you are joyful with a new song in your heart. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would move among us this morning. Forgive us where we have grieved you. Forgive us where we have sinned. Would you move among us and and cause in our hearts this morning there to be praise to our Father in heaven and his Son Jesus who redeemed us. Would you right now do a work in this church to engage our hearts in thanksgiving? Let the reality of judgment influence our lives in the right way, Father. Please, bring us to salvation. Bring us back from our wandering. Strengthen us in knowing that you will deliver us from our trials. This morning, would you cause praise to erupt from us that is pleasing to you? Right now in this church, let this not just be the end of the service, but let this be a time where we respond to your word in thanksgiving. For those who are prayed for today, God, will you hear their prayers? For those who are praying in their seats or at the front, would you hear their prayers? And would you answer, God? Jesus, would you make us eager that you will come and save us? Help us. We love you and we need you. In your name we pray. Amen.